0: We're in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, as we said this morning, if you weren't with us this morning, we're talking about the comments that Jesus made. There's a handful of them. And Jesus made these statements while he is enduring some horrible, horrible punishment, torture, cruelty. That cross was just in a, a science You know, like some did during World War II. There were some who have a crazed mind tried to develop different ways of torturing people. Well, the Romans developed it into an art, a science of how they could torture. And they developed this crucifixion that was just an absolute amazingly bad way of torturing people. And so Jesus is there for those six hours, being tortured on the cross. And while he's there, he's going to make some statements. Now we looked at a couple of them this morning. We looked at a statement that, Je- oops, excuse me, that Jesus made about, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And also to the thief that was next to him, where he said to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. I want to develop from some of the statements we find in John 19. In John 19, if you follow, I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then we'll jump and look at just a couple verses here. It says in verse 16, says, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. That is, we have this this whole account of Pilate giving Jesus over to those that would crucify him. And Jesus bearing his cross went forth unto a place called the place of the skull, or in the Hebrew it's called Golgotha, where they crucified him and the two other are with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And it was the writing was this, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout, and they said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by the one whom he loved he saith unto his mother woman behold thy son then said he to the disciple behold your mother and from that time that hour that disciple took her unto his own home after this Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished so that the scriptures might be fulfilled said i thirst Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it into his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost." The Jews, therefore, because it was preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross of the Sabbath, for that Sabbath day was the high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then comes the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with Jesus. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came out the blood and water. And he that saw it bear record and his record is true and he knows that what he says is true that you might believe for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled that said a bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture said they shall look on him who they have pierced. Lots of things. Lots of ideas here. But let's take one phrase just as we get started. Woman behold your son. Son behold your mother. This passage, this phrase, this comment is again another prophecy come to pass. The prophecy is an Old Testament. The prophecy is what's made by, by Simeon the prophet in Jerusalem when Jesus was just a baby when they came when he was just eight days old to get him named to be taken care of and the prophet grabbed Jesus and was understood that this was the Messiah and he turns to Mary and he says that your heart shall be broken he says a sword shall pierce your heart you are going to see such great pain and so Mary standing there she is seeing and experiencing what was was stated that she was going to experience some severe pain that her son her son that she knew that she he raised she knew what ty- kind of a person he was she knew what he had taught what he had said she knew that he had great power and potential she even told the servants just 3 years earlier whatever he tells you to do with this water you do so that we can get this wine at this wedding taken care of she knew him she understood now she's seeing him crucified beaten bloodied you know how you would be you would be as a parent seeing your child in physical pain that that would just rip your heart out. She's experiencing that. She's got this prophecy fulfilled. She's looking at him. Now the comments made are according to John, made right at the time when they are gambling for his clothes. And especially for his one garment in particular they're going to gamble for. The other garments they aren't. Is there any significance to that? There's a book that's been put out that, if you want to read a really good book that's just uh, about the different sayings of the cross, it's called Cries from the Cross by Urban Lutzer. And uh, he has some information here that I think is very pertinent for you and me, thinking about what Mary must have thought and why that idea of the Roman soldiers die, you know, gambling away or dissecting and dividing the garments. All of a sudden they say, let's not rip it. This one piece of the garment, let's not rip it, but let's, you know, let's make sure we gamble it away. As Jesus began speaking, the soldiers were casting lots for his undergarment, okay? Let's not, it's called a coat, but it was the undergarment. Let's not tear it, they said one to another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Jewish men usually wore five pieces of clothing. When we read of the soldiers dividing them into shares with the undergarment remaining, it does not mean that they tore the clothes apart, but that they had divided up the four other pieces, but they had to decide who would get the fifth garment, the seamless undergarment. Usually this tunic was given, this is, this is traditional in Jewish culture. Usually this was given to the son by his mother. Legend says that Mary gave this tunic to Jesus when he left home. We don't know if that's true or not. If it is true and it fits Jewish custom, one of the Christian writers points out that there seems to be a connection between the soldiers, what they were doing at this moment, and the words of Jesus Christ at that moment. Immediately after we are told that the soldiers were casting lots for his tunic, all of a sudden the scene shifts and we see Jesus looking at his mother and then the following words. Does that make sense? It's the moment that he, the mother is seeing her gift being taken from the son. And being moved by that gift, last weekend we were in Arizona, my, daughter, my sister-in-law was deeply moved by one gift. One gift that she went into the home of her daughter who had just passed away. And it was a gift that her mother had made for her daughter. And it was a special blanket made when she was just a little child. But Lori, after these 30, 38 years, that blanket still held significance because it was a special family gift passed on from the mother to the daughter. So this is what they're talking about. Is The writer goes on, why now? She's been there all along watching and weeping. Why now does he turn to her? Why hasn't he acknowledged her or spoken to her before? Could it be because the seamless tunic? Because now he sees, oh that's, that's this token between us. I think so. His outer garments were insignificant but when they touched the tunic, they touched something near to his heart, the garment made for him by his mother. The point is that when the soldiers began haggling over the tunic, it was then that Jesus looked at his mother. The gracious words that now come from his lips were filled with love, pity, and nostalgia for his mom. So he says to her at this moment, those simple words, okay, mother, okay, he says, behold your son. Why is that? Because in this moment that he's speaking, he is revealing as well his deep, deep commitment to fulfilling the law of God. Does the Ten Commandments ever talk about how we are to treat parents? Yes, no. Yeah, absolutely. What does it say? Very simply. It says in the, in the commandment, it just says very simply these words, honor your father and your mother. When does that stop? When does that cease? When all of a sudden you become a teenager, now you can disrespect your parents? When all of a sudden you become married, you no longer have to have any, any kindness towards your parents? Is there all of a sudden a time when we can flip a switch and we can all of a sudden start belittling, tearing down, cussing, cursing our parents? Doesn't seem that way in Scripture, does it? In the Word of God it says very simply this, listen to your father that begat you and never ever despise the mother even when she is old. This, this is real clear. This is real plain. This was the will of God. This was the word of God. Jesus now at the time of his life when he is there at the cross, he's an adult. He's in his early 30s. He's been away from home for a period of time. And on top of that, he's in great agony, great pain. He is suffering pain, shame, thirst. He is suffering, suffocating, if you would. Remember we talked about to get a breath, you had to pull yourself up, pulling at those, all the sinews and the muscles and the tendons that the stakes were through. You had to pull yourself up to get a next breath. And in this great agony, in this great painful moment while he's being attacked by other people who are mocking him who are criticizing him despite all that, despite his emotional, his, his physical his spiritual pain, he is doing what God has commanded him to do and what God expects him to do. Be respectful towards his parent, towards his mother. Of all people That we often say we can just let it be the way we feel. We can say and we can speak without any type of bridle upon our lips. We can let the family have it because they'll understand. Not by the example of Jesus Christ. By the example of Jesus Christ, he is doing what God has required of him as a son. He is doing exactly what God says you're supposed to do even though he is in personal battle, pain, and agony. So we have this example provided, an example of respect, of obeying the word of God, an example of showing great compassion for his mother, compassion that is evident, you can see it, you know it, that all of a sudden in this moment he's concerned about her future needs. While he is dying, and we understand that. Many of us have dealt with family members. We've seen loved ones who are preparing to meet the Lord because they know they've got a a death sentence because of the doctor's comments. And they're concerned about the family members. They're they're lining things up. They're getting things in place. They're, They're arranging all the finances. We understand that. Jesus, while he's on the cross, he is making sure mom's taken care of. He is going to make sure that her welfare is provided for. He's going to be very considerate of her. Now you and I look at the text and we go, really? This is considerate? When you look at her and say, woman. Okay? That, that's not our culture. We don't talk that way. But in that culture, in the word that he is using, it is basically saying, dear lady, it is a very respectful, honorary way of speaking at his mom, even when he is in pain, even when he is in agony, even when others are against him, even when there's a moment he's wondering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Mom? He doesn't bust on her. He doesn't rip on her. He isn't disrespectful towards her. He is considerate towards her. He's not only considerate, he's not only compassionate and concerned, but he cares for her. He takes care of her. He makes sure her needs are met. He can't do it. It's beyond him. We understand that. Physically, he's going to leave. But he's got to make sure mom's needs are met so he makes sure that they're met by giving her off to a disciple who obviously had the means of taking care of her because what does your Bible say? From that moment on, he took her to his home. So John he put her in the care of somebody who shows enough concern to be there. Somebody who shows that he has the wherewithal in order to handle her needs. And so Jesus is providing for his mom. He's doing exactly what the scriptures tells us to do. He's putting her in that care of somebody else. But there's also in this statement a compassion towards his friend. Do you know which friend I'm talking about? The one that it says the disciple whom Jesus, how's he identified here? The the one that he loved. Now did Jesus love all the disciples? Yes. But this one is in particular John writing about himself. And he's just describing it, just trying to be a little bit I'm a a disciple whom Jesus loved. Well Jesus loved them all. And so he's not being arrogant or pompous, he's just trying to fill in and kind kind of fend off any attention to himself and just say I kind of fit in with the rest of them. But I was there. I stayed there. And this disciple, if we remember what he had done just hours before, he was like the other disciples. The other disciples who had deserted him. They went with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were there. In fact, Peter, James, and John even went deeper in the Garden, and they were with Jesus while he was going through his great high priestly prayer. And Jesus was in agony, and he was so tormented, he was bleeding, sweating blood. But Peter, James, and John who were supposed to be watching with him, they did what? They slept that time. Not only just the first time that Jesus came back and rebuked them but the second time and then the third time. And then they had said, he had been like Peter, he and the others had said in the upper room or just hours before, they said we will never leave you, we will die with you. But how many stayed with Jesus after the soldiers grabbed him and started marching away? Where was John? He's like the rest of them. He ran off. Now he comes back to the cross, but he had run off. And So here's this one that Jesus, if we want to speak from human to human perspective, there could have been disappointment. He had not followed through with his commitment. He had not prayed the way Jesus asked him to pray for him. Please, pray with me, watch with me. So he disappointed the Lord. And yet the Lord turns to him at this moment, and he says, son, behold your mother. Sometimes it's not just what he says, but what Jesus didn't say that's important at this moment. What is left out are words of rebuke, words of you know, tearing down and scolding. There's no reprimand recorded. Just, just Jesus on the cross saying to this man who's come back, I trust you. I am giving you my earth's greatest possession, my mom, the care of my mom. Oh, by the way, let's remind ourselves there is other family members alive and well in Jerusalem. Jesus has brothers and sisters, does he not? Mark chapter 3. But Jesus puts, puts the care of mom into John's care. And he's saying to him, I am not holding what you did against me. I am giving you a great responsibility. I am entrusting her well-being. And by the way, my mother will have needs. You know what it's like. Some of you have been there. You have lost a child. It is devastating. It is rending." And under these circumstances it's even worse because he was innocent. He was pure. He was the the son of the earth and of all creation and now he's being tortured. He's going to be talked against. She's going to have some battles and need some encouragement for the next few days. Then he'll come back and boy she will be picked up like all the other disciples. Unbelievable to be able to see him again come Easter morning. Just an amazing story. But Jesus, at this moment, is providing us example, providing us some examples in this regard that neither age nor situation life ever gives us permission to violate the passages that call us to be respectful. Never, never in the Bible do we find license to abuse our parents verbally. Never. Never do we find in Scripture the allowance to rip and tear and to just just blast mom and dad. Never ever. And Jesus' example is saying, in the most horrible moments, I mean, it, it's the worst thing that could happen to you. You go to your closet and you don't have an outfit. Whoa, that's just devastating. You don't have the food you want at this moment because you didn't communicate that you were going to be leaving. And it's the worst moment in your life. No license to beat up mom and dad verbally. None. None. Never. Ever. And Jesus says to you, you need to follow my example. You have got to follow the word of God when it comes to your relationship with your parents. Give you something else. Personal pains or struggles never ever allow us to become rude, short, curt in our speech towards family and friends. Other family and friends. Might not be just your parents, but Where in scriptures do we get the right that, oh, I got a hangnail, now I can really get mad at the family members? I've got a bellyache. Because my belly belly is upset, it's okay for me to be short and rude to everybody else in the house. Where? Where in the Bible does it say you can do that? I got a headache. My headache gives me permission to be really mean and caustic towards family members. Oh, I, I don't feel good at school. I stubbed my toe, I've, I've wrenched my ankle. Now I can just be mean and be very self-centered before all my friends. Never, ever, ever do you have that in Scripture. But how many times do we act that way? How many times do we think we have license to be able to lash out at others around us? Not by the example of Christ. Not by your Lord's example that he says, follow in his steps to take it a step further. Pain and struggles do not justify our isolating ourselves from or ignoring family needs. I'm hanging here on the cross. I've got all kinds of problems. You're on your own, lady. I don't care about you. You've you got to fend for yourselves. Don't you see I'm tied up here? No. Even when we're in the midst of a tragedy, even when we're in the midst of our own, our own crises, we still have obligation to care for the needs of others within our household. What does Scripture say? If we do not provide for those in our own household, we are worse than an infidel, the unsaved. So we've got great obligations here. We've got to have great self-control. Can I make this even more pointed? Jesus is in the minute minute of going through his greatest spiritual labor. He is serving God at this moment. No service to God is an excuse for being short with other people. Okay, I'll bring it here. They'll bring it to me. I'm preparing for a sermon. I'm trying to get it ready. Woe be unto eh, my wife if she interrupts me because I'm serving God. Serving God gives me license to be rude to others. Really? No. I'm a missionary and I'm sacrificing and we're going through great difficulty. We're trying to learn a language and we look foolish and we ordered, the, we, we ordered stuff that, you know, we ordered forks and plates when we wanted food. We don't know what we're doing. We're saying the weird things. We walk to the bank and we ask for a fairy tale rather than a bank account. And it's embarrassing. And it's all those things we heard about just a couple weeks ago. That gives me the right to go home and to be harsh and sharp with other people. No. No. Graciousness exudes from the lips of Jesus Christ. It is pouring out. Does it pour out from your lips when you come into church? When you ride in the family vehicle are you gracious? When you leave, are you gracious? When things don't go their way tomorrow, what kind of words come out of your lips? Do you remember how they took note of Jesus? That he spoke gracious words time and time again, even in the deepest, darkest moment of his life. So what do we work on? Just taking that one aspect. That one aspect calls us by example to be concerned about family members. That one aspect calls us to be concerned by the way we talk, the way we speak. This one example says, get it under control even when your circumstances are out of control. There's a lot here in this one statement about you and me living by the example of Jesus Christ. But let's take it a step further. Okay, Here we have an example of love, pure love towards family, uh, towards friends while he's on the cross. Let's go a step further. Let's talk about pure love for people and for God in this phrase. I thirst. I thirst. It's a very simple phrase and it's much more than what you and I talk about. Okay, I, I find here great irony. Think with me for a moment. Jesus, the Lord of creation, did he ever deal with water? Did he ever talk about water during his ministry? Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, do you remember some of the things he did when it comes to Jesus and water? He walked on it. He was so powerful he could walk on the stuff. He was controlling it. He could calm it down in the middle of the storm say, peace be still, it's done. He with water, he do, does miracles. He changes the composition of water into wine. Jesus, in his speech, calls himself the living water, and time and time again says, if you drink of the water that I give, you will never thirst again. And he calls to the people, come, drink, let me, let me give you to drink, and out of your belly shall flow, flow rivers of water. So Jesus in water. It's kind of ironic that this king of kings and lord of lords who is in control of water now says, I want some. I thirst. And this thirst is a whole lot different than what I'm feeling right now. It's a whole lot different than some of you when you've gone on your regeneration reservation missions trip to the desert and you worked for a while. And if you don't drink enough water you get that headachey feeling and all of a sudden you just feel very listless and wore out. This is much more. This is needing something because he is in such throes and approaching these moments of death. He needs this nourishment. The refreshing. just, Just the help of the water. Oh by the way you know what this is like. You breathe, your, your sinuses are clogged, and you breathe through your mouth. What happens after a little bit? gets dry and parched, and your voice becomes cracked. Remember, he's hanging there, and he's pulling himself up, and he's gasping. And not only on top of that, he has bled out so much. What can happen with somebody at this moment? The dehydration, the loss of blood, the need for, for liquid. And he calls out, not just the idea, I want to drink. He is calling out, using words that, I am really thirsty. And he is in agony. He, now what strikes me about this is this. okay, Number one, we know he's human. He's not just a god on the cross. He is purely human. And his humanity is coming out of this such that he is experiencing what we experience. Pain, agony, the side effects of lack of, uh, of physical needs. But there's a passage in Hebrews that talks about coming unto him, praying unto him, because he is a succorer in the King James. He is one who runs when, our, when, when the child cries at night. The parent runs to the bedroom. Jesus is that succorer where he runs where we call. And we are told, come to him. He's a great high priest who he understands our needs. He does. He understands pain. He understands being rejected by others. He understands hurt. He understands desperation when you don't have anywhere to turn. He understands when all of a sudden needs, I mean real needs are desperate. I thirst. I really need this right now. Please give me some water. I am dying of thirst. And he is. He understands when you come running to him and saying, God, I really need something right now. He is the great sympathizer. He is the great empathizer. He is the great one who understands everything we feel. There is nothing. There is no problem. There is no trial. There is is no emotional experience that he cannot relate to. He's gone through it. Maybe in a different facet, but he's gone through it. He understands totally. So his humanity, his experience, is one that draws us to him that says, we want to come to you. But this this thought, this, this to me is the most pungent thought out of this phrase, I thirst. The phrase comes out of the Old Testament. It is quoted, and again, we're told it's a fulfillment of Scripture. Out of the Old Testament, there's a couple of different verses that talk about, like Psalm 69, 21, that he's saying that they're going to give him vinegar to drink, that he is so thirsty. We read elsewhere that I am poured out like the water, and my bones, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. These are fulfillment, prophetic messianic passages that are fulfilled by his agony when he cries out, I thirst. Here's the thought that strikes me. Did Jesus know those Old Testament passages? Did he know them before he came to earth? Did he know that what those passages said is this is what you're going to go through? And still he signed up for it. He knew that it was God's will from ages past that this was going to be the agony that he would experience. He knew that this was his father's way of getting to a point of glorification. But there would be torment. There would be suffering. There would be agony. There would be this great thirst. He knew all that. Yet he comes. Yet he signs up for it. Yet he says, I will do this voluntarily, not forced. He comes to this earth. He endured it when he could have easily changed the situation. Remember, he could have made water at that moment. He could have had that water come shooting out of a jug right into his mouth. He controls it. But he endured. Why? It's God's will. It is God's will for him to suffer. It is God's will for him to go through this trial. This reveals the depth of his submission and love towards God the Father. I don't think I have that. I would struggle with this. I did struggle with this. This was the very passage I was reading on good friday uh, on easter week 3 years ago 4 years ago when my daughter becky called and said dad they just diagnosed i have cancer and i hung up the phone and i had this moment i was so angry with god how could you do that to my daughter how could you do this how could you let her have this she loves you she serves you how could you how could you let such a thing happen to a young lady just a brand new mom there was a struggle for a few hours that morning, I still have remembered in my office being angry. Not, I wasn't taking any phone calls. I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was between me and God wrestling with his angel at that moment, doing the Jacob and the wrestling thing. And guess who wins? I mean, seriously. But it was a battle to say, I'm not, I, I didn't sign up for this. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't Scripture say, When you fall into diverse temptations doesn't it say take up your that's what we signed up for. Are we submissive to the will and the ways of God Almighty? The author here in this book might be able to give me a little bit of insight and a little bit of help in trying to explain what I'm trying to get at. Jesus' burning thirst calls out to us about the depth of his submission to the word of God. Jesus was resigned to whatever had been written he accepted the plan that he and the father had agreed upon we must ask whether we are as prepared to be as submissive to him as he was to his father are we willing to suffer unmet needs are we willing to even suffer burning thirst are our comforts of more of more value to us than doing the father's will Is our spiritual thirst for God as great as our physical thirst for a glass of cold water and the blistering sun? We've all been deprived of something we're convinced we can't do without. A new widow told me she does not know how she can go on with life without her husband. A man cheated out of his inheritance, said that he does not know how to face the future, robbed of the money that was rightfully his. Another I met is angry because he was denied the health care he believes he deserved. Nothing. Nothing however, can compare to being deprived of water when hanging on the cross. We've all noticed that it takes does not take much for us to have our fellowship with God interrupted. An unpleasant phone call, the need to skip a meal, a physical pain, all of these can make us question whether God has forsaken us. We grumble when we have no water, though in point of fact we deserve the cup of God's wrath. Jesus was submissive to the Father's will as recorded in the Father's word. It mattered not whether it was pleasant or tortuous. The glory of the Father overshadowed all of his suffering, pain, and injustice that he had to endure. Are we that willing? That's tough. But that's what Christ shows us. This love for the Father that says, I will do whatever you want me to do, even be denied of the basics of life. I thirst. I am determined to follow your will at all times. And by the way, maybe this helps us in the middle of those moments, keeping our minds fixed upon Scripture. Jesus repeatedly is stating scriptural statements. He is going back to the Word of God. He is doing what Hey, any of you do it? Several of you, just recently, you were involved in school plays, school dramas. What did they give you weeks before that you had to study? Scripts. And what do they expect you to do? Stick with a script. And it's a safe thing, because once you start ad-libbing, whoa, oh, anything can happen on stage. Well, Jesus doesn't ad-lib. He sticks to the script of Scripture, and he even speaks Scripture in the middle of his agonies. Maybe we should learn from that. Maybe we should fill our minds and hearts with so much scripture that in the middle of the moments when we are really struggling, we are quoting scripture. Maybe that'll be a help to us. That we are responding with biblical phrases, with biblical terminology, so that we keep our minds upon the will and the word of the Lord. That we speak it. Whatever it be, you and I need to be able to say, God, I am willing to thirst. Now let's take one more statement. The statement that is probably the most pungent, the most the most extensive statement, but we've left for the fewest of minutes. My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? We know that in Matthew 27 when he says it, they don't understand him. They say he's calling out to Elijah. Well, he's speaking out Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And when he says it, they don't get it all. That makes perfect sense. It's not that he's all of a sudden speaking in a language that none of, but he, none of the people understand or know, and it's some heavenly speech. What do you speak like when your mouth is so distorted by pain, by a toothache, by novocaine? Do you speak or kind of slur, and the juice or whatever you're drinking comes out? Well, Jesus is in pain. Remember, they, he has been punched quite a bit. Never says about you know about the the agony and the swelling, but we can just imagine his speech is kind of slurred. He is suffering, he's in pain, and he calls out, and they don't quite get it all. But under the inspiration of Scripture, they get it. And we know that it is, again, a statement from Scripture. That he is quoting Psalm 22. He is making a comment that he is speaking out of Scripture. We know as well, this is the only time he addresses God this way. My God, my God. Every other time, what does he say when he's talking to God? Every other time, he's saying... You know, our Father who art in heaven, Father I know that you always hear me and I thank you that you always hear me. Standing at the graveside. We know in his high priestly prayer in the upper room Father the hour has come. It's always Father. This moment at this time when he calls this out he is saying my God my God there is a, a significant moment here in his experience on the cross where now it is clearly represented he is separated from the Father. He is now no longer in that close communion. Why is that? Why is there a separation within the Trinity at this moment that I can't explain other than they they are going through a moment where there there is division between the two. Jesus is suffering the greatest part of hell, separation from God. Why is that? Because scripture says he became sin for us. At that moment when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has taken my anger, my lies, my lust, my cheating, my pride, my greed, my envy is on him at that moment. It is placed spiritually, infinitely, placed upon him and he is suffering everything that i should suffer and not only me but who else you he has become our sin he is experiencing the chastisement of sin you know there is so much here it is amazing this is the worst of experiences that anybody could experience hell is the worst and Jesus is suffering the equivalent of hell for not just one person, but for, wow, the worst of his experience. Doesn't this show us about the holiness of God? The intolerance of God for sin? Oh, wait a minute. God will just kind of ignore my sin. It's okay. You know, you know, my, my stuff isn't so bad. This is what it costs Christ. This is what it cost him. Your greed, your lying, your cheating, this, this is where, where, it's, where it gets. Jesus is experiencing this and this is something that isn't, Jesus isn't forced, he has voluntarily agreed with the Father this is what will be done that they agreed would, would take care of the payment all that is decreed about the sin and he voluntarily stays on that cross when he could have called 10,000 angels, he is there because of you and because of me he is there rejected, he is there separated from the Father, it is not an easy thing to do It is not something that that is delightful. In fact, let's see if we can go back to somebody explaining it better than me. Jesus went through darkness that we might have light. He was cursed that we might be blessed. He was condemned so that we might be able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He suffered hell for us so that we can enjoy heaven with him. He entered into doleful darkness that you and I might walk in the light. He drank the cup of woe that I might drink a cup of joy. He was forsaken so that I might be forgiven. Sin, like a loathsome serpent, clung to him, but he bore, he bore the sting for us. We can hide behind the wall of his grace and know that we are safe from wrath to come. Without the cross, Spurgeon said, there would have been a wound for which there was no ointment, a pain for which there was no balm. Sin always exacts a payment. Either Jesus bears our sin or we do. If the Father turned his face away from his beloved Son when he was regarded as a sinner, we can be sure that the Father will turn away from every sinner who stands before the judgment bar on his own merits, rejecting Christ. We are either saved by his rejection or we must bear our own rejection for all eternity and aren't you glad that you have come to the point where you've accepted his rejection for your salvation or you would suffer it so when Jesus is there it's because of you and because of me this is his deep love this is his compassion now remember all of this was done not only to make a spiritual payment, to buy us salvation, which we understand, to give forgiveness to a thief, but according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it was also for an example. Not an example that we can save others, but beyond that, how we should live, how we should handle trials. So we ask ourselves, how should we act? We should act in this sense. It would be good in any adversity to season our speech with Scripture. Jesus did it. We've already mentioned that. Let me give you another thought. In any adversity, we should pray without ceasing. Even when it seems like God is distant, pray without ceasing. Even when there isn't an immediate response, pray without ceasing. Jesus did time and time and time again. Father, forgive them. Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? He prays at the end where he gives up the ghost and says, Father, into the hands I commend my spirit. His whole cross experience smothered with prayer. Ours should be the same. This should strike us that in any adversity our greatest concern should be our fellowship with God. I underestimate this. But going back and saying where Jesus is on the cross his greatest most agonizing thought is I am separated from the Father. The greatest most agonizing thought that we should have in any trial is am I close to you or have I walked away from you? Have I I separated myself from you? Because I cannot handle this trial without you. We've said that. Haven't you said that? How do a lost people go through some of these things in life? How do saved people? How do born again people say that they can handle the difficulties of life without relying upon the Father? This is a call to us. To remind ourselves in the middle of adversity, we should be concerned that in the middle of that moment, we have good fellowship with Him and we are glorifying Him. The greatest the greatest response we should have in any difficult moment is, I want to glorify you. I want to glorify you. I want to magnify you. Not my comfort, not my escape from pain and agony, but that I glorify you. And that's what Jesus is doing. Glorifying the Father and saying, Lord, I want to glorify you, and with that to be done, my God, my God, I don't want to be forsaken long term. Please let me get back close to you. The highlight of this whole section that we've looked at tonight is love. Love, 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 love. Love for his Father in heaven. Love for his earthly family. Love for his friends who had disappointed him. He loved them. He cared for them. He showed that in the middle of his adversity and of the last group of people, who should we say? You and me. Now I, I look at the cross and it was a heinous thought, but at the same time, isn't there a beauty to the cross? There's a beauty because exuding from the cross, pouring from the cross is not just the blood of Christ, but the compassion of Jesus Christ for you and me. A love that is beyond compare so there is nothing wrong with you and I singing about the sacrifice of Christ, the the cross of Christ, the pain, the agony of Christ. But we want to remember the cross is not the end. It is just the beginning because Easter. Or how did they say it? Then came Sunday. And it gets so much better. Next week let's pick up on this.